The Italian Renaissance was an era of rebirth in the arts, sciences, engineering, anatomy, and architecture, but also for literature. One of the most influential works from this period was Matteo Maria Boiardo's epic poem, Orlando Innamorato. This is a poem of over 35,000 verses. It entered the popular consciousness through puppet theater in Sicily and southern Italy in a way that is inconceivable for other literary texts that uh, are part of the canon. That's Joanne Cavallo, a professor of Italian at Columbia University. Boyardo's poem became widely popular among the masses through these nightly serialized puppet shows in Sicily. But before it was adapted for the puppet stage, it was read and adored by the nobility. Orlando Inamorato was well-received from the start because Boyardo gave his audience something both familiar and new. He combined genres to create a beloved work of art that continues to influence Italian culture today. When I traveled to Sicily, even recently, the older population knew all of the details of the lives of Boyardo's characters. So it became part of their upbringing and culture and way of thinking about the world. And the poem that he writes, Orlando Innamorato, on the one hand is coming from the tradition of uh, the chivalric epic with the uh, acts of heroism and knights doing uh, brave, brave deeds. And yet, on the other hand, his formation is that of a humanist going back to the classical texts and so Homer and Virgil and, and Ovid. And what he ends up doing in his poem is to combine those. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Joanne Cavallo to discuss Matteo Boiardo's Orlando in Amorato. Who was Matteo Boiardo, um, and and what was the, what was his context like? What were the ideas and and culture swirling around him? He was born in 1441, died in 1494, and he was in an aristocratic family. Boyarda grew up in a town in northern Italy during the early years of the Italian Renaissance. He was educated by his grandfather in the increasingly popular humanist style, which was a revival of ancient texts and ideals from ancient Greece and Rome. Boyardo was a gifted child, and he started writing early in life. Some of his earliest works were love poems inspired by the early Renaissance poet Petrarch. As a young man, he studied Greek, Latin, philosophy, and law at the University of Ferrara, and then assumed his role as a nobleman. He became the Count of Scandiano, a small um, territory. He was also one of the closest companions of uh, Duke, the Duke of Ferrara, Ercole d'Este. So he both was active as a military governor of the cities of Modena and Reggio Emilia in the Emilia region. Throughout this time, Boyardo continued writing. In fact, almost all of his works were written for Duke Ercole and his court. He wrote translations of historical works, uh, most notably the uh, translation of Herodotus, the histories. And he was the first to translate the histories into a vernacular language. 
He translated The Lives of Famous Captains by Cornelius Nepos, uh, Xenophon's The Life of Cyrus. He also translated Apuleius's Golden Ass and a, a play um, that he called Timone and that later Shakespeare turned into Timon of Athens, possibly uh, having seen Boyardo's text. So he wrote in a variety of genres. Also, he has a book of lyric poetry, which is considered the um, best collection of lyric poetry of the 15th century. Could you say a bit about lyric poetry? Um, What were these poems like? Who were they written for? Unlike the poems of Boyardo's most famous predecessors, um, and I'd I'd say Petrarch among uh, everyone, but also Dante, Boyardo didn't write about a fictionalized woman. He wrote about a a woman that uh, was from the court in Reggio Emilia named Antonia Caprara. And he wrote about the phases of their love affair from the euphoria of its beginnings to the delusion when she betrayed him and to his ultimate um, ability to get beyond the experience. Despite the fact that his lover betrayed him, Boyardo's poem was in favor of love. He began his poem not by disparaging the emotion of love, but by saying anyone who is young and does not fall in love has a um, heart that is empty. And so he valorizes the experience of this emotion, even if it didn't turn out so well for him. But Boyardo's love poetry isn't why he's remembered. He's remembered because of his epic poem, Orlando Enamorato, which he began writing in his late 30s. Even though the title is about a single character, Roland, or in the Italian tradition, Orlando, there are multiple characters from all over the world who undergo adventures in interlacing episodes so that you don't follow one thread. It's very much their suspense built up and then you switch gears and you pick up another, another story. Orlando Enamorato follows the adventures of Orlando, a character based on the historical French military leader Roland, who served under Charlemagne. The poem is divided into three books. The story opens with a banquet hosted by Charlemagne. Orlando was there along with other members of his court. A beautiful princess from Central Asia named Angelica arrives at the banquet. She decides to hold a competition. She offers herself to whoever can defeat her brother in a fight. A knight named Ferraguto accepts the challenge and successfully kills her brother. Angelica then flees, and several members of Charlemagne's court chase after her, including Orlando, who becomes obsessed with the chase and goes completely mad. And he lost his head to such extent that he deserted his wife and his country and his king to go east and to follow her, to pursue her love, and to undertake adventures to try to win her over. So that may be the, the initial guiding thread of the poem that takes us out of Paris and all over the world. The story alternates between romance adventures and epic warfare. The three books that comprise the Orlando Enamorato have three different beginnings, which might be another way of, of summarizing the poem. The first book is 
said to open with the threat of Gradasso, the king of Sericana, so a king from Southeast Asia, who is planning to arrive in France in order to win Orlando's sword and Rinaldo's horse. So there's a threat coming from the east, but it will resolve itself in a romance adventure. Book two opens with a different kind of threat coming from North Africa, the King Agramante of Biserta, so modern-day Tunisia, wants to actually conquer France. So there's an imperialistic um, theme that comes into play. And the idea that more uh, is at stake than just the loss of uh, a horse and a sword, but it could spell the end of uh, the Frankish realm. And the third book opens with a knight, Mandricardo, who is coming from uh, Mongolia or the Mongol, Mongol Empire in order to kill Orlando and to appropriate his sword uh, in uh, order to avenge the death of his father, the Mongol king Agricane, who had been killed by Orlando. So epic threads and many, many romance adventures. Boyardo depicts several different kinds of love in this poem. It's not simply Orlando's uh, head over heels in love for Angelica, or it's not simply about unrequited love. He has, uh, he features two couples in the poem who are examples of requited love. And they're quite exceptional because the one couple, uh, Brandimarti and Fiordelisa, are from opposite ends of the earth. And when we encounter them in the poem, they are continuously acting on behalf of one another and helping one another, searching for one another. And they provide a model of requited love. The second couple, uh, Ruggiero and Bradamante, are very much in a mixed union in the sense that Ruggiero's father is a Southern Italian Christian and his mother is half African and half Amazon uh, who converted for love of the father. Bradamante, who's the sister of Rinaldo, is a half-sister because her father was a Frankish Christian, but her mother in most of the uh, cantari or most of the poems prior to Boyardo in the tradition, uh, her mother was a Saracen. And when they meet, they are in enemy camps. Bradamante is fighting for the Franks and Ruggiero is fighting for the invading North Africans. And they are able to put their personal courtesy above their allegiance to their leader. And it's that couple amongst every other character in the poem that's designated as the ancestors of Boyardo's Dedicatee. So there's something uh, to be said about putting one's personal honor over everything else because it leads to not only their own enamorment and uh, marriage, but to the future Estense dynasty. Orlando Namorato ends abruptly because Boyardo died before he could finish the poem. 
A generation later, the Italian poet Ludovico Ariosto picked up the thread where Boyardo left off in his own epic poem called Orlando Furioso, or Orlando Raging. So Ariosto takes him to a much darker place. So it's not a character we can smile uh, with or, or even chuckle about. It's a character who wreaks havoc on nature by pulling up trees, on uh, horses and farmers and any innocent um, person in his, in his path, including Angelica. When he meets her, he doesn't recognize her and uh, plans to rape her was just a shock because earlier when he's uh, a character in Boyardo's poem, he sees Angelica sleeping and only contemplates her, contemplates her beauty. And when she gives him a bath uh, at one point, Boyardo makes the joke that um, there's nothing moves or nothing grows. And so he's, he's quite uh, incapable of uh, showing any kind of um, physical desire for Angelica because it's such a question of adoration. And when he gets to Ariosto's poem and loses his humanity, then he also loses any sense of self-control. In Orlando Enamorato, Boyardo drew heavily on two bodies of chivalric literature, the Carolingian cycle and the Arthurian legends. The Carolingian cycle came from France and focuses on Charlemagne, the 8th century king of the Franks. Many of the stories are about battles between the Christian Franks and the Muslim Saracens, and explore themes of nationalism, war, and personal honor. The Arthurian legends, on the other hand, came from England and focus on King Arthur, the 6th century British ruler. The Arthurian legends typically contain elements of chivalry, love, and adventure. Boyardo uses some of the same characters from the Arthurian and Carolingian legends in his poem. What he actually does in the poem is to use the Carolingian knights such as Roland, who in Italian becomes Orlando, Charlemagne, and other knights who were known to the court, but he basically turns them into Arthurian characters so that they are pursuing love interests and are in, involved in magical adventures and quests rather than fighting uh, over religion, which is really uh, put on the back burner. But Boyardo's literary borrowing didn't stop there. He also included elements from the Greek and Roman epics he had read in his humanist education, such as the Odyssey and the Aeneid. So there's a way that Boyardo will take a uh, classical episode and then rework it at will to give examples of, let's say, behavior to avoid and behavior to follow, which was a common uh, way of reading literature for the, for the humanists. So you will find the medieval knight Orlando um, encountering the Cyclops. And rather than simply blinding him, he kills the Cyclops. So he, he does one better than Odysseus. And then rather than just leaving very prudently, as Aeneas did, he actually goes to the Cyclops cave and removes this huge 10 foot by 10 foot boulder to liberate all of the prisoners who had been left inside. So he brings this idea of the knight errants of medieval chivalry and the imperative to help others uh, regardless of, of who they are, any, any strangers that one meets along the way. He brings that to an episode that had been very well known 
from classical literature. Boyardo was writing Orlando and Amarato for the Duke and his court, and he wanted these stories to be entertaining. But he did use the text to explore complex questions and advocate a moral vision of the world. There's an ethics of action behind them. So he's not very preachy and he's not very judgmental of his characters. But at the same time, it's clear that he is advocating a a universal code of chivalry with uh, respect across borders. He's condemning treachery and fraud. He's um, commenting on those who fall in love at first sight without understanding the essence of the other, but just judging by service appearance. Uh, He's uh, encouraging perseverance when a knight will fail uh, undertaking some kind of mission in the first or second attempt and then keep on trying and changing strategies and ultimately prevailing over fortune. So it becomes a test of virtue over fortune. So almost any episode that you look at behind or beyond the entertaining surface, there is a a sense of the world, a sense of, uh, on the one hand, the inhumanity of man and then the humanity of many of his characters. What was so important about chivalric culture to, um, to the people of this time? When I think of chivalry in the Orlando Innamorato, since it was written at a time in which this was, uh, I'd say, in flux, the court of Ferrara was imbued with images of chivalry. And yet... Uh, the court itself was made up of say, courtiers and, and, and diplomats who were more fascinated with the thematics than involved in, a, in military practice. Um, one theme, I think, is justice. And many of the most beloved knights are continuously coming upon a situation of injustice and trying to do something in order to right the situation. So the knights are undertaking heroic actions where by a lot is at stake for not only for themselves, but for strangers, for communities that they, that they enter. Something else that I find attractive and that I assume would be, have been attractive for those of the time was the sense of freedom because the knights were very often outside the confines of Charlemagne's court. Orlando leaves Charlemagne's court because he's in love with the princess Angelica of, of Cathay, but the other, another knight, Astolfo, deliberately decides to leave Charlemagne's court because he condemns it for its abuses and for Charlemagne's own uh, blind spots. And he undertakes a voyage across Eurasia and through uh, right up to, to China. And this sense of mobility, I think, is part of the appeal of the, of the poem, that the knights are able to travel the world. And not only the male knights, the female knights as well. Yes, imagine you're a peasant stuck to your feudal land, uh, stories about strong, 
brave knights wandering the world must have been quite escapist. Yes, and the literature was read by those, of course, who were literate and were therefore of an upper class, but the stories also did circulate uh, orally through all levels of society. So I think it did provide um, maybe not only models, but some escapism. The first two books of Orlando and Amarato were published in Boyardo's lifetime. Book three was published in 1495, the year after his death. His poem and Ariosto's continuation, Orlando Furioso, were instant successes, especially among the royal courts that Boyardo wrote for. The readers of the time from the courts began to name their children after the characters that they found in Boyardo and Ariosto. Uh, so they really identified with them. They had debates over whether Rinaldo or Orlando should be considered the greater hero. There are so many accounts of rewritings of these stories and continuations. So since Boyardo's poem was left unfinished, there were five different continuations by three poets, not counting Ariosto, uh, that tried to finish all of those love adventures that Boyardo had left um, suspended. So it really ushered in a new genre of romance epic, and that continued through the next century. These rewritings and adaptations were mostly read by the upper classes because they were the ones who could read. But the stories eventually spread among the general public by way of oral performance and through the popular Italian puppet theaters in cities like Sicily. These were performed nightly in plays that could go on for over 300 uh, consecutive nights in which the people of Sicily, mostly a male audience, would follow the adventures of the knights day after day, and they would hear the stories of the knights on the streets told by uh, storytellers or even read from a prose version of the, uh, of the epic. And they would discuss these characters. They would know them in and out. Where were these puppet shows performed? Was it basically like us going to the movies today was a kind of popular entertainment. The plays, unfortunately, were not filmed. So we don't have, or we don't have the ability to view a full cycle, but there are scripts. And so we can read about what uh, was seen on, uh, on a daily basis. If you go to Sicily today, there's a very limited repertory. And so it's also geared towards foreigners who may not understand the language. And unfortunately, there's a lot more emphasis on the battles and on the technique of the sword fights than there is on the stories and the dialogues, which was more characteristic of the traditional puppet theater because the public was interested in the stories and in fact, there are many anecdotes about uh, a puppeteer either changing the story or making a mistake with the character and the audience correcting him 
because they knew the stories as well as the, the puppeteers did. So I think you could say it was like a soap opera of the time because the episodes were interlaced and you'd be going back and forth um, between the vicissitudes of one character or another. But with the, unlike the soap operas, the audience already knew for the most part how the story was going to develop and wanted to see it over and over again. How long were, uh, were these stories really popular? In terms of canonical works, I'd say by the end of the 16th century, there's a movement away from writing new chivalric texts. So the main impetus of writing new works seems to be dying out. Uh, but there's an undercurrent in popular culture which keeps the chivalric works alive because they continue to be printed and read and either uh, read out loud on the street to those who are illiterate or um, read um, in one's own private residence. So that follows through until maybe the 1950s with television in the home. And that's what is usually considered the end of traditional puppet theater, when the crowds did not find their nightly entertainment by going to the puppet theaters in the cities and in the rural areas, uh, but could stay in their own home and watch a variety of new programs on, on TV. So I'd say the characters and the stories from Boyardo were very well known in Italy and especially in Sicily until the advent of television. In Orlando and Amorato, Boyardo created a template for modern entertainment. His stories include love, adventure, and new worlds and perspectives. By combining the heroic Greek and Latin epic poems with the medieval Arthurian and Carolingian legends, Boyardo created a new epic vernacular and gave audiences captivating stories through which they could explore questions of morality, failure, and courage. I think very often of these characters. Of course, I've lived with them for probably 40 years, but for me, they are models. Even as entertaining as they are, they do offer ways of thinking about the world outside of uh, one's comfort zone. Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant, Liza French, and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Fair On Do. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thank you for listening. See you next time.